Today's episode of Your Stories is sponsored by Cards Against Humanity. They asked us not to read an ad, so enjoy the show! Your Stories is a wonderful opportunity to share all the highs and lows of being a nerd. You know that hobby you have that you don't talk to anyone about? It's a secret you don't like to share because it might make you feel weird. Maybe you're into something different. Uh, comic books, fantasy football, push-ups. Your Stories, to me, has been this really kind and welcoming space where people just have the guts to be really honest and they share their voices and their stories with everyone there, no questions asked. Uh, I've heard stories about all those things. Uh, maybe not not a lot of push-ups. I maybe haven't heard a lot of stories about push-ups. The Nerdalogs is group therapy meets Toastmasters. I know there's always a place where my odd thoughts and unusual habits will be welcomed and championed in a warm, supportive environment by other nerds just like me. And what's fun is you'll see people in the audience one month, and then all of a sudden they uh, go up and tell their story. So your story becomes their story, and their story is your story, and then it's our story, and then it's a podcast, so it's everybody's story, and then you've shared it, and gosh, that's great, huh? And even if you don't think you're a nerd, you probably are. It's easily the most Midwestern thing I've ever been a part of. Hi everyone, I'm Eric Garneau, and this is part one of the Nerdalogs Presents Your Stories podcast mainstay, Fan Fiction February, now in its fifth year. Every February, we invite some nerds from across Chicago to share their own fan fiction or reflections inspired by the idea of fan fiction, and we are never disappointed. This time out, we partnered with Versus the Universe, a local production collective that makes podcasts, live shows, music videos, and all sorts of other cool stuff. They brought a ton of talented people out to supplement some of the regular Your Stories crew. So this week, you'll hear from Mike Chuck Bretzliff and Joe Gennaro, Jamie McCabe, Matt Peters, and Katie Johnston-Smith. Plus, you'll get music from myself, Dwight Hassler, and Katie. These fanfiction apps are always really fun to produce, and we hope you enjoy listening to them. Now, I wanted to toss a plug to our friends in Versus the Universe, who just launched their own Patreon page. You can check them out at patreon.com slash versus the universe and toss them some dollars to help keep their creativity running smooth. Uh, of course, us nerds also have a Patreon page at patreon.com slash nerdalogs. Among other things, we host a Your Stories archive there, as well as some bonus material for my podcast about mixtapes, Blank Cassette, which is a show I'm really proud of, so if you like mixtapes, check that one out too. Uh, but the coolest thing you can do as a listener of this podcast is rate and review us on iTunes. That seriously helps a ton. So if you've got a spare minute today, maybe do that. Uh, and thank you so much for your time, everybody. We hope you enjoy the show. This is a pretty esoteric uh, theme, and we chose the songs in kind of a weird way. Every year we do something different. So this year, these are songs that were... They're presented in, they're real songs presented in, as though they were created for a fictional context in various medium, uh, media. So you'll see what we mean shortly. Um, you'll get it. <laughs> My point is you all know these songs, and then there's like shows and video games and movies where these songs are performed in a way that makes you think that these songs came from them, but they didn't. Uh, yeah. So these Does first... everybody got that? <laughs> Can I just get a yes? <laughs> okay, cool. Yeah. Hell yes. So these... Okay, you need to leave. <laughs> Jeez, Joe. 
sacrilegious. So these first two songs are from uh, the season of American Horror Story. That was the freak show season. Um, but they are not written by the freaks that were in the freak show. They were written by other freaks that did rock and roll for a living. <laughs> oh, freaks, baby. from Katie now. Come on up, Katie. Okay. Yeah, this is Katie, guys. She's the newest member of our group. Yeah, Katie! We all love you, Katie. It's all right. They just need coaxing. They did, yeah. It makes me feel like maybe they don't. Oh, oh no. It's okay if they don't. Love is a very strong word, and nobody should be tricked into saying it. <laughs> <laughs> wow, this got real fast. <laughs> cool. Um, what? <laughs> 
I mean, I agree with you. <laughs> I'm not gonna say it right now. You Katie, shouldn't. this is awkward. Okay. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> uh, I'm gonna stand. Yeah, this is I... good. I'm gonna sit. Great. This song by David Bowie, yeah. also performed in the I love show. this song. <laughs> what? I meant it. <laughs> no, that's your opening chord. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> it's a god awful sad affair to the girl with the mousy hair. But her mommy is yelling no. And her daddy is told her to go. But her friend is nowhere to be seen. Now she walks through a sunken dream to the sea with the clearest view. She's hooked on the silver screen But the film is a sad bow For she's lived it ten times before And she could spit in the eyes of fools As they ask her to focus on sailors Fighting in the dance hall Oh man, look at those cave and go It's the freakiest show Take a David Bowie, damn it, and he can't tell us anymore. <laughs> or maybe he can. I know, right? Something to think about. 
Guys, so we have a bunch of wonderful storytellers, comedians, and great people here tonight to share their pieces with you. They might share actual fan fiction. They might share reflections on fan fiction. I don't know. I don't preview these things. Let's let we're in this together. Although I do know what the first piece is, and it's it's gonna be really exciting. It's a twofer, actually. So we've got a member of the Nerdalogs coming up to the stage now. Great uh, comedian, great dude to write and work with, and a lovely friend. And also being joined by uh, the head of Chicago Loot Drop, someone who uh, their organization is a really special connection to our fan fiction nights. They come out like every time. And I think your first story was actually at our very first fan fiction night. It was about the Luke Skywalker meeting the alien and the predator. Uh, Yeah, it was uh, pretty rad, guys. It was from a a book you wrote in like sixth grade for a project and like there's scanned pictures online and shit. It's really cool. Anyway, please welcome to the stage, Mike Chuck Bretzliff and Joe Gennaro. Hello, uh, I guess while Eric's getting set up real quick, I'm going to plug some Loot Drop stuff real quick for everybody here. Um, next month, uh, at March 19th at Revolution Tap Room, we're having a Comfort Kit Day uh, for Comer Kids. Uh, we'll be making uh, Comfort Kits, which are boxes full of uh, games and books and puzzles for the kids at Comer Children's Hospital. What you can do is go to our website, chicagolootdrop.org, to register. And what you're registering to do is to make five kits on the 19th, and in between then and now, you'll be have your own little personal fundraising page. Just raise $100 to cover the cost of those kits uh, over the next few weeks. Show up on the 19th, make the kits, um, have some beers with us, and play some board games. It's going to be a really great fun afternoon. And then uh, April, C2E2, that'll be our fifth year there, doing a thing we call Drawing Dreams, where we take kids from Comer Children's Hospital, pair them with local comic book artists, um, the kids talk about themselves as heroes, as superheroes, and the local comic artists turn those into renditions, either drawings or paintings or whatever, and we um, auction those off to, uh, raffle those off, excuse me, to raise money for the hospital, and then the kids get to see themselves um, in some framed prints, as well as additional prizes, um, the prints to them as the kids. Um, also, Aaron's going to plug his uh, Patreon. I already backed it. You should, too. <laughs> so, there we go. There, are we all good to go up there now, Eric? We have multimedia things, and I just want to make sure. Okay. Uh, okay. So, uh, before Joe and I begin, I'm going to get closer to this so I can read it better. All right. Before Joe and I begin, I also just want to be closer to Joe. Uh, allow me to give you a bit of context. Okay. Um, so, first, uh, <laughs> this up on the screen is The Undertaker. He is an undead wizard mortician, and he's been one of my favorite pro wrestlers for 30 years. That's like same for you too, right, Absolutely. Joe? Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. Um, so most wrestlers nowadays are fairly grounded concepts. Uh, there aren't a lot of wrestlers like The Undertaker anymore. Uh, case in point, this is Finn Balor. Um, he's a nice little Irish dude that likes to play with Legos with the same SummerSlam tape on infinite loop um, in the background. Uh, this is what he looks like for most of his matches. However, when a match is really big, he transforms into a demon symbiote. <laughs> Hashtag fitness goals. Hashtag Halloween costume goals. Uh, now, Demon Finn is basically indestructible and impossible to beat. WrestleMania is the Super Bowl of pro wrestling, and at it, The Undertaker is basically indestructible and impossible to beat. The Undertaker has been wrestling forever, and every WrestleMania has speculation about whether or not this will be his final match. 
Uh, whenever he does have his final match, I hope he does wrestle Finn and passes the torch as the WWE's premier mystically-powered wrestler. <laughs> this story is how that match might go, <laughs> but only if they were actually an undead wizard mortician and a demon symbiote, and not just characters they're portraying. The setting. Two years from now, WrestleMania 35 at Soldier Field. One hopes. Not going to happen. Anyway. Okay. After saying he would drag people to hell for decades, The Undertaker plans to back up this promise with Finn Balor. The match is stopped when Taker casts a spell, causing the ground surrounding the ring to erupt with fire, opening a chasm down to hell. The front rows on the announcer table fall down into the pit, Thankfully, Joe and I were in the cheap seats and are able to volunteer our services to commentate on the rest of this epic match. Hello to the WWE Universe. For those just tuning in the last five minutes of WrestleMania 35, I'm Mike Chuck, filling in on commentary. And I'm Joe Chris Geiger Gennaro. <laughs> and with neither of us having professional announcing experience, nothing could have prepared us for this. Speak for yourself, Joe. Some of us have been practicing in front of our bathroom mirrors for years. We made it, hairbrush. Now that we're down here, the match is about to restart. Meanwhile, these amazing superstars have been doing some showboating while waiting. Taker is firing lightning bolts at the feet of Finn, but Finn is nonplus, using the demon symbiote of his, of his to reply with two massive clawed middle fingers. An homage to the great Stone Cold Steve Austin, these claws can open more than just a can of whoop-ass. Though I'm sure that they are useful for cans as well. Too true, Joe. Uh, anything that's difficult to open. Uh, a new ref has entered the ring, and he's making the wrestlers return to their corners before restarting. He's signaling for the bell. Uh, looks like the bell ringer has fallen to hell as well, but I think The Undertaker may have it covered. And there it is! The match is now restarting. Both superstars approaching each other in the center, grabbing each other by their shoulders in a lockup. Each is struggling to gain dominance over the other, moving back and forth, but neither is able to get a strength advantage. It's not always about strength, Joe. Sometimes it comes down to strategy. It looks like Finn's is to stretch his torso out, wrapping it around the Undertaker's body like a boa constrictor, squeezing the unlife out of him. In fact, Balor is looking more like Jake the dog than Finn the human at this moment in time. <laughs> not sure how the Undertaker Taker plans to escape from this. Oh, obviously a reader of comics, Taker knows that symbiotes are weak to fire, so from within uh, Finn's vice-like hold, Taker has self-immolated. Just like me playing NBA Jam, he's heating up. He's on fire, literally. The flames have caused Finn to release Taker and turn to his mostly normal demonic symbiote shape. The, the dead man uses that space to throw Finn to the ropes. Undertaker drops to the ground, Finn hops over, Back on his feet, The Undertaker goes for a clothesline as Finn bounces back, but Finn ducks under. Rebounding back again, Undertaker raising that long leg of his into a big boot intended for Finn's face. But Finn turns into a puddle of ooze and slides under, reforming behind Undertaker and continuing once more into the ropes. Ah, the old secret world of Alex Mack maneuver. Nice. <laughs> Finn comes off the ropes fast, his right arm expanding into a massive claw. He's going to cut The Undertaker in half. But Taker is turned into mist, and Finn's claw passes through harmony 
hilariously, to the astonishment of Balor. Uh, no time to be distracted by magic tricks because the Undertaker has become corporeal again and has grabbed Finn by the throat. The crowd is going wild as the Undertaker's eyes roll back into his head because they know the choke slam is coming next, which could be it for Finn Balor. Not if his demon powers have anything to say about it. Taker thinks he's got a hold of Finn, but Finn's symbiote is crawling up the Undertaker's arm. His eyes returning to normal. He's trying to pull away from Finn, but tries. He might. The symbiote's grasp is just too strong. He's really pulling hard now, and oh my god! Taker's arm has come off! Taker's arm is ripped from his body and still trapped in the demonic goo! Finn is now turned towards us. I think he's gonna do something with the Undertaker's arm. And he's waving at us with it. <laughs> yes, we, we see you. Hello. Real gross, dude. Real gross. Uh, dropping the arm in the corner and turning back around, Finn charges at the Undertaker, leaping in the air, launching him into the turnbuckle with two Ooh. feet hard to the chest, collapsing the one-armed man into the corner. I think I heard something break from here. Finn leaps to the top of the turnbuckle. The crowd is on their feet in anticipation of his finishing move, the coup de grace. Jumping high into the air from the top rope, Finn stomps down, again driving both feet into the chest of the Phenom. Okay, I definitely heard something break that time. But thinking he's got this one in the bag, rather than going for the pin immediately, Finn is crawling toward the broken body of the Undertaker. Uh, looks kind of like the sex crawl from uh, When Doves Cry. But the Undertaker sits up! Taker sits up! Finn backs away quickly from the dead man's gaze, a look of confusion upon the, dead, uh, upon the Demon King's face. I think he's figured something out, though, as he returns to his feet and raises his hands towards the sky. What is, what is his plan here? Is he making some sort of a spirit bomb? Uh, you might be right, Joe. There's definitely some kind of light or energy coming from the cheap seats where we were previously. Well, it's very pretty, but you're gonna need more than Laser Zeppelin to defeat The Undertaker at WrestleMania! And more is exactly what I think Finn is doing. I believe he is literally draining the life from the crowd in the upper bowl. In fact, I can see the faces of some of the friends we came with and we're sitting next to. Oh, there goes Kyle Talley! Oh, I'm gonna miss ah. him! Yeah. <laughs> now, Joe, would you say that... Uh, now that he's full of souls, Finn is emanating with power? Yes, I would, Chuck! He must have been chanting Mufasa because the hairs are standing up on the back of my neck. I'm worried about the safety of the Undertaker as this powered-up Demon King slowly stalks towards Taker, rippling with enough energy to surely destroy the world. Not just our world, Chuck, but all versions of it in the multiverse! What is his ill intent with this Lovecraftian Elder God level of power? Awe-inspiring power! Absolutely destructive Super Saiyan-level shit! Here it comes! And it's a sleeper hold. And, okay, well, what that's going to do is eventually cut off the blood flow to the Undertaker's brain, causing him to pass out and lose the match. Uh, good point, Chuck, but the Undertaker is undead. He doesn't need blood. This sleeper hold is useless. Yeah, but he's got it locked in real good, Joe. Um, the power of the souls of thousands of spectators is certainly helping him maintain proper form and leverage, so the ref is now going to check that Undertaker is conscious. Raising and releasing his arm once, Taker's hand hits the mat two more times, and Finn will be the victor. Up oh, there's the second time. I just can't believe this could be how the Undertaker's final match ends with a sleeper hold. And the ref is raising Taker's hand one last time to see if he's out, but what's that in Undertaker's hand? What's that? Oh my god! It's the Undertaker's other arm! It has crawled back to its master, and he's using it to get some leverage, breaking free of Finn's sleeper hold. Ah, oh, and now he's reattaching it, using it to grab and twist one of Finn's arms. Pointing up, I believe I believe he's signaling that he's about to go old school. 
old school, The Undertaker with Finn's twisted arm and hand climbing up to the top turnbuckle and walks out to the middle of the ropes. Jumping off, he strikes Finn in the twisted shoulder, slamming him hard to the mat. Taking an E and drawing a thumb across his throat, the dead man is calling for the end of the match and maybe the end of Finn Balor. He's picked up the downed Finn and is now holding him upside down, Finn's head at knee level in preparation for the Tombstone pile driver, a move that's put away so many others at WrestleMania. But not just yet, because I do not believe my eyes, but with Finn in tow, The Undertaker has started ascending towards the sky. They are going up, up, (laughs) up to the top of the arena. And beyond. I can't see them anymore, can you, Joe? Indeed, I cannot, Chuck. Uh, uh. What should we be, uh, well, I guess this is a good time to remind everyone at home that they can rewatch this match to end all matches again on the WWE Network for just nine. Here they go! Like a shooting star falling from the heavens, they are now burning bright as they plummet back to the ring. My God! My God! My God! He's broken him in half! <laughs> Not just in half, but Finn has exploded all over into puddles of black ooze. How do you pin somebody when there's no body to pin? Not just you wait, Chuck. The puddles are collecting in the bottom of the crater that was once the ring. It seems Finn is pulling off the old T-1000 maneuver. He seems dead to the world, but Finn has reconstituted himself and the Undertaker goes for the cover. Not sure how the ref has survived it, but this is it. The end of the most supernatural match in all of history. One, two... What? What? Whose music is that? Oh my! A black car has driven onto the top of the ramp, blasting classic rock. That's a 67 Chevy Impala to be exact, Chuck. And not just classic rock, that's Kansas. Well, whatever it is, I don't know what it's doing here, but it's trying to drive towards the ring, but it's being impeded by the pit of hell surrounding it. Well, that doesn't seem to be much of a deterrent as the car speeds towards some debris, using it as a ramp to vault over the fire, landing just outside the ring. <laughs> there are now two men getting out of the car, one a little short and the other built like a... Like a, like a what, Joe? Like a moose, Chuck! That's it, and the Undertaker is now surrounding the ring in smoke. As it clears, a fully restored ring appears, and Finn is back to his feet as well. The two young men are now entering the ring, approaching our two superstars, just staring at each other. Both pairs have now retreated to opposite corners. Are, are we about to have a tag team match with these two strangers against The Undertaker and Finn? <laughs> I think so! I think so! But that's it! We're out of time, folks! Tune in tomorrow night for Monday Night Raw to see what happens. WrestleMania! Mike Chuck and everybody! And Kansas! For the podcast audience at home, Kansas was literally here playing that song. Weird how it sounded exactly like the studio version they recorded like 40 years ago, but it was actually them. Thank you guys so much. That was awesome. I didn't know that there was like a symbiote demon guy in wrestling. Oh, yeah. Wrestling and comic books are pretty much the same thing. (laughs) Except you can watch one live several times a week. 
Guys, so like I said, we are partnering with Versus the Universe tonight. Very excited to bring them here to the Your Story stage. We've got five folks from their kind of network, their family of, of uh, creative stuff tonight. Starting with this gentleman who works with The Geek Show, is the co-host of Panels on Channels, is handsome, smart, and has run a four-minute mile. All things, all things I learned before the show. This is Jamie McCabe. That, the four-minute mile one is the true one. Um, uh, th- this is an idea I've had for a screenplay for a few years, and I, I decided to like tweak it out to fit this format just a little bit more. Uh, it's called Two If By Death. <laughs> the year is 1776, or thereabout. The sun sets as Paul Revere sits on his porch in a quiet neighborhood in Boston. He eyes the old watchtower. George Washington has given him a very important task. Were the British to attack, it is his job to warn the citizens of the impending attack. Lights will appear at the top of the watchtower to signify how the British are attacking. One if by land, two if by sea. We all know that story. It's been weeks, but nothing has happened yet. But Paul, not one to shirk his duties, keeps his eye on that tower whenever he gets a chance. He hopes that the day never comes, but some of the current events that are going on in the world, he... He thinks that's a false hope. The British are coming. It's only a matter of when. He looks in on his wife and child. He's hoping that whatever happens, they will be unharmed. He takes one last look at the tower, and and that's when he sees it. The lights are lit. Two of them. The British are attacking by sea. He has to act fast. He grabs his musket and runs into the barn. He flings open the doors and saddles his horse. Old Betsy might not be the youngest horse or the fastest, but she would have to do as the two of them had a very long night ahead of them. Paul leaps upon the horse, steals himself, and then summons forth the unholy power of the ghost rider. An unworldly... (laughs) Another worldly demon force that grants him powers beyond that of mortal men. In an instant, his flesh is gone, leaving only bone, and his skull is engulfed in glorious flame. The same transformation seems to overtake old Betsy, who looks less like a horse and more like a monstrosity that would not be out of place pulling Satan's carriage. Let's ride, he shouts, fire bursting from his mouth. He grabs a chain off the wall as they charge out the door, a trail of embers flowing behind them, marking their path. The British are coming! The British are coming! He shouts at the top of his lungs, or what would be lungs if he was not an unholy creation of bone and fire. He races through the streets of Boston, warning his countrymen of the attack they are about to face. Old Betsy tears through the streets at speeds that would scare even the most practiced of riders. Given the hour, however, the citizens of Boston are slow to rise, and even slower to accept what they are seeing and hearing. Paul sensed this and realized he was going to have to buy the city some time. He tears through the streets, making his way down to the ocean front. When he arrives, things seem calm, the waves make no sound, and he could only make out the, the silhouette of the British ship through the fog. He stands, a flaming sentinel on the beach, prepared to take on His Majesty's forces alone, if that's what it comes down to. He hears the sounds of oars slapping against the sea as the British and their rowboats make a slow yet steady pace towards land. They were unaware of the creature they were about to face. Paul climbs off of his horse and steps into the ocean. The cold water steams as it touches him, as if he were hotter than the fires of hell itself. He uncoils the chain from his shoulders and begins to whip it around his head. Faster and faster the chain whirled until it was almost a blur and burning hotter as it went. 
He could see the soldiers starting to climb out of their rowboats and marching ashore. When the chain was white hot, Paul slammed it forward into the, the waves, which instantly erupted into a torrent of boiling pain. The British soldiers started screaming, their wells bringing what could only be a smile to Paul's face. The few that were actually lucky enough to make it to American soil looked back at their howling comrades, terrified of what they were witnessing. Is this the reason that the colonies had been targeted? Had they fallen prisoner to some sort of witchcraft? As they stood in terror, Paul slowly turned around and raised his musket. Normally, it would only be good for one shot, no use against the 20 or so men that stood against him on the shore. However, the unholy alliance that he had made with Mephisto granted him certain abilities. <laughs> he aimed down the sights of the weapon and fired. Bang! 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 A fully automatic musket. <laughs> With each shot, he stepped closer and closer to the enemy, the sockets of his eyes blazing with the fire of a hundred suns. Within a few moments, he stood but few from ugh, he stood but a few feet from his last remaining opponents. He grabbed his chain, whipping it forth with all his might, and split one of the red coats in two. The other soiled himself. <laughs> Paul grabbed the man by the cuff of his jacket and stared directly into his soul, consuming the man's very essence in a fiery inferno, leaving only a whimpering shell behind. He threw the body on the sand and stepped back. He gazed around. The beach was ablaze. The British boats were ablaze. The British themselves were ablaze. <laughs> Everything was ablaze, but the battle had been won. He marched back to Old Betsy and mounted up. As he trotted back through the city towards his house, he saw the citizens approaching from the other direction. Finally ready to fight a battle that he had already won, Paul de-ghostridered and crept past them through the alleys. They need not know what had been accomplished that night. He got Old Betsy back in the stable, hung the chain and the gun on the wall, and snuck back into the house. He looked down at his wife and child, still asleep, and kissed them tenderly on the forehead. He then crawled into bed himself, took a deep breath, and fell asleep. Thank you so much. Jamie in the cave, everybody. That was fucking cool. If there's any artists who uh, listen to the podcast, would you please draw scenes from that? <laughs> I want to see that visualized. That's so awesome. All right, guys, coming next to the stage, we have the host of the brand new podcast since last we spoke, as well as a board member of the Chicago Nerd Social Club, which I'm sure has helped out many of us in this room at one point or another. They're a really great organization. Really happy to welcome Matt Peters. Thanks so much, Matt. All right, folks, thanks for having me. Um, I also wrote wrestling fan fiction, but it's uh, Bray Wyatt versus the lady from the Popeyes commercial. Nice. <laughs> I'm going to pull up Dan Harmon and read from my phone, if nobody minds. <laughs> from the moment I made Lionel right atop Optimus Prime's trailers to enter battle against random dollar store toys, I've been creating fan fiction. Like most kids growing up, I had action figures, but growing up in the 80s, I had the best ones. Every cartoon was a 22-minute commercial that effectively gave me a case of the I Wanna's. Now, growing up less fortunate meant making do with the toys available, so... While some kids got the full run of G.I. Joes, including the giant uh, cruise ship, uh, I got the main character, and the rest of them were rejects from Dollar Central. My cousin didn't have it much better. She'd end up kidnapping more Joes than Cobra Commander to go on dates with her Barbies. The height difference was awkward for both parties, trust me. Now, growing up, I used to love cartoons as well. One of my favorites was Darkwing Duck. I loved it so much that it fostered my disdain for the Chicago Cubs when their afternoon games preempted the Disney afternoon programming block. <laughs> <laughs> the 
When the cartoon stopped, my imagination carried on. There was no such thing as a season finale. I sat under the dining room table at my grandmother's house making up stories. The stories never had a beginning or an end, but they always seemed to include the trope of two heroes meeting for the first time, fighting, and somehow shaking hands at the end after teaming up for the greater good. They surpassed toy lines, they surpassed companies, but hey, I was 10. I had no grasp on what copyright infringement was. <laughs> Okay, lost my spot. Uh, <laughs> this is about where everybody starts. Take Jeff Johns, for example. Years before he became the creative director for DC Comics, he was writing fan mail to DC, which was printed in an issue of Superboy. The iteration of Superboy was special to me. The introduction of Connell was part of the Death of Superman storyline. My first experience with the mega crossover where things will never be the same again. In that letter, he pitched the idea that maybe Superboy was a clone of Lex Luthor. The editorial team not so kindly brushed him off in the usual letters column tradition, but he ended up showing them. First chance he got, he started writing Teen Titans, and the pivotal storyline involved Connell being a clone of both Superman and Lex Luthor. <laughs> Spoiler warning, I'm sorry. <laughs> it became one of the best stories I've ever read in the DCU. That's the beauty of making your own stories. No one gets to tell you no. So when I was in grammar school, I wanted a piece of that. Remember I told you earlier about my love for Darkwing Duck. Well, I made a comic knockoff called Lightwing Matt. <laughs> the title made no sense whatsoever. It was awful. <laughs> the characters always had high top fades because I couldn't draw hair. <laughs> Capes were just oddly shaped triangles. Like I said, I have no artistic talent. My brother inherited it all from my grandmother. <laughs> Didn't save any for me. But by the end of eighth grade, I managed to fill a whole notebook with the adventures of Lightwing Matt. My best friend Reggie and I passed it back and forth in English class, creating our own omnibus of exciting stories. Eventually, one of our teachers confiscated it, as they're known to do. Um, I was livid. Nothing was more important than getting that college road spiral notebook back. I begged, I pleaded, and I, I was told that I could retrieve it during summer break from, my, from the principal's office. So, first day of summer, I come back up to the school. Not too early. I didn't want to look thirsty. <laughs> I came to get my book. Mrs. Thomas was shocked. Well, she was shocked once I jogged her memory anyway. She goes, I didn't think you'd actually remember that. It was months ago, and I threw it out. <laughs> I was heartbroken. I, I didn't have the desire to start from scratch. I was going to high school anyway, and as I mentioned, my brother actually grasped the talent of how to draw hands, noses, etc., and uh, feet in a recognizable fashion. The world was not clamoring for more uh, light-wing mat. Years passed, I decided my efforts would be better spent celebrating the work of others through my website and podcast. I tried my hand at teaming up with an artist to make an original comic, and it didn't turn out too well. <laughs> um, my family will to this day ask me the generic but well-meaning, hey, how's that comic thing coming along? We've all gotten that before. The truth is, even though I don't publish my stories, the desire never stops. There's that little twinge in the back of my head that says, I know I could write a better ending than that. And my friends and loved ones have to suffer through hearing me begin conversations with, let me tell you how I would have handled things. <laughs> so I end with a quote from Sarah Kuhn. Uh, she recently wrote for Uncanny Magazine. It's a sci-fi magazine uh, made in Chicago. If you haven't had a chance to check it out, please do. She says, if you can't imagine yourself as the hero of a fictional story, it bleeds in everywhere, in what you write, in what you do, in what you think you're worth. You make yourself the sidekick of your own life. And I challenge everyone here to write your own fiction, fan or otherwise, and be the hero of your own story. Thank you. Thank you so much, Matt. Matt Peters, everybody. That was great.
Man, I remember I in like fourth fifth grade I drew my own Transformers comics. I get those got thrown out too. Real shame, man. What is the world missing out on? <laughs> the very first fan fiction show we ever did, I read I, I like this was like four years ago. I sent a Transformers comic pitch to the editor of the Transformers comics. And he wrote back to me and said, Oh, this is okay, but no thanks. So you know. <laughs> Maybe I should have put myself in that story instead of punch counter punch. Who the fuck cares about punch counter punch? He's so cool though. He's an Autobot and a Decepticon. Anyway, <laughs> he's the coolest. Guys, we have one more storyteller. This half, she is another member of the Nerdalogs. Uh, coming to stage, I don't know if she'll, she'll be up here as herself or not. We'll see. But please welcome Katie Johnston Smith. I'm actually Jack White. Um, yeah, uh, hi, I'm Jack White. Uh, uh, you may know me as a member of the White Stripes or as um, a member of the Dead Weather or as uh, being the same color as milk. So um, you've also maybe thought to yourself from time to time, oh, hey, yeah, Jack White, I would really like to write a song like you. And of course, everyone wants to write a song like me. So uh, t tonight I'm going to give you a few pointers, a few how-tos, how to write a song like me. All right? Okay, cool. Uh, cool. So this is a song I wrote just this morning. It is perfect for a winter sing around a campfire, should you be able to find any winter left in the world. Great. <laughs> <clears throat> I want to steal you all up to a crowded square and stare it straight in the eyes uh, and hold it by the hands as it murders me with lies. Uh, there's a mist draped over our love like the one rolling over these tombstones. It's as damp as a night in Gettysburg, so it's good that those don't have bones. Boo! Boo! I'm a spooky, spooky ghost. Boo! Boo! I'm a spooky, horny ghost. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. So, uh, it's always good to um, start your song from a place of emotion. I usually choose sadness. Um, and also, like, bonus points if you can set your song in a graveyard during the Civil War. Okay? Cool. Uh, cool, 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 cool. So, um, some people don't know this about me. I have kids. I have two kids. I'm a dad. I'm a, I'm a dad. Got a soft spot for my kids. Uh, this is a song that I wrote with them in mind. All right, okay. <clears throat> I seceded from my mother's womb. Aware, aware, I didn't cry. I was born a baby into this world, but old babies grow up and die. I was born to be murdered by your love. I was born to be a ghost, spooky ghost. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, kids love ghosts and dying and murder. They're cute, right? They're really cute. They're really cute. That's why it's important to reference them one to 37 times in each of your songs. I know I do. Okay. Cool. Uh, cool, cool, cool. So, um, you know, you may be thinking to yourself, Jack White, I do not play an instrument. Uh, I do not sing very well. Uh, and that's okay, because we can't all be as good at piano as me. Uh, so, uh, all you really need to write a good song and to perform a good song are two things, okay? You need uh, rhythm and attitude. All right, so um, I'm gonna need y'all's help on this last this last piece. All right, so I need like a rhythm from y'all. So just join me. Thank you. Thank you. All right, great, cool. All right, so uh, you may know this one. Uh, if you do, please sing along. All right. Ah! 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 
Also, bonus points if you can sample a murderer crows. Thank you. I'm Jack White. Thank you. Thank you so much. Guys, we had Jack White in the house. We had Kansas. Who knows who's going to show up next act? Maybe REO Speedwagon and uh, Colin Malloy from The Decemberist. I can't promise anything, but you never know. So come on back in like 10 minutes and we'll see. Yeah. Your Stories is a proud part of the Chicago Podcast Co-op. If you enjoy your stories, you might also like Open Ended. The vulnerability behind the glass with the side of sass. This radio show seeks the people behind the screens through stories that intersect technology and culture. For more info on Open Ended, visit openended.fm. This has been a Nerdalogs production. If you'd like to help make more things like this, please visit patreon.com slash to donate today. And go to www.nerdalogs.com for more cool stuff. Thanks for being awesome. Thank you all. Thank you all. I am Grabbot23548X.